Now hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, thanks, Susan. And uh, thank you, guys. Brenda and I do consider it a privilege to serve here with you. So... Uh, it is that delight. And if you're uh, following along, we're in a series and we're going to take a break for four weeks from this. But we're in the gospel according to Mark in this series. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark and the scandalous gospel. And if you heard last week, David Cassidy talked about bring the children to me. And, and he made the comment that perhaps if you've had uh, the challenge of, of being a parent or grandparent, you you struggle with, have I been effective? Or if you've tried to disciple people, if you've got teenagers that you're discipling, you wonder if you're making any impact. And you can take courage in that because Jesus was with his disciples three years now. That he had been with them in ministry, continuing to train them up and whatnot. He's probably uh, three weeks or so away from the cross. And, and we find the disciples arguing among themselves about who's the greatest. So Jesus, the greatest teacher that ever was, the greatest disciple that ever was, he's still having difficulty with his disciples struggling with who's the greatest. Now, he is dealing, they are dealing with a, a particularly difficult sin, the sin of pride or that of self-importance. And pride is a subtle sin that uh, we don't think we're proud. We know other people who are. And so that's the danger of it. I mean... I mean that's exactly, I mean, C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. And if, you, if you've ever read Screwtape Letters, there's a great little scene. Screwtape is training Wormwood. He's a demon training a younger demon how to keep these humans kind of frustrated. And he said, don't, don't ever let them realize they're, they're proud. Because that's, you know, that's the way we can keep them, keep them going. But if they ever figure out that they're proud, just make them proud of the fact that they realize that they're proud. And if they realize they're getting proud, they're taking pride in the fact that they realize they're proud, make them proud of that. He said, you can string them on as long as you want. Tim, Tim Keller was doing a series one summer. He was teaching through the seven deadly sins. And his wife, Kathy, asked him, which, which week are you speaking on pride? He says, why do you ask? Well, that'll be your smallest attendance. Because people don't think that they're struggling with, with pride. And she was right. They, they showed up. The smallest attendance was that particular week. And, and so it's a difficult subject. It's one, of these, it's one of these sins that we have a hard time recognizing. 
Uh, we can see it more in others than we see it in ourselves. But again, Jesus didn't have a problem with talking about greatness. I mean, he, someone came up to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? He, he didn't bat an eye that love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or when he talked about John the Baptist, he was talking about there's none born of a woman greater than John. But even his least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than is greater than he. So Jesus didn't have a problem with greatness, and he'll talk about it throughout his ministry, but he had a problem with their criteria. He had a problem with their standard of what is considered great. I've often wondered what the disciples were trying to figure out. How, what was their criteria? Well, you know, I can cast out a demon quicker than you can. Or, I don't know. I mean, Jesus, I'm, we're the three that went up on the mountain with him. I don't know about the rest of you, but he took us up there with him. I mean... What it, what it might have been, but they were arguing among themselves. And Jesus had to kind of take them aside and continue to instruct them. So we're going to look at, look at three things. The disciples' attitude or their idea about their perspective on greatness. Uh, secondly, Jesus' perspective on greatness. And then there are two living examples that Jesus himself gives for us. So <clears throat> the disciples, as they were looking this this idea of greatness, you know, as Mark divides his gospel account, he starts it off. It's the gospel of, of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so he breaks it up in these two ways. In the first half of the gospel, Jesus is being revealed as the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And it's actually at the pinnacle just a few weeks ago. We saw that, that Peter is the one who says, you know, who do people say that I am? And he finally said, what about you? Peter chimes up, you're the Christ. And so after they realized that Jesus was the Messiah, then Jesus had to start instructing them about what the Messiah's role was because they had all these different ideas about what the Messiah would be. And even in Jesus' teaching, I mean, they knew. I mean, he, he was greater than Elijah, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than David. I mean, the sum of all that. As a matter of fact, Jesus often said, if you, you know, this, this generation is going to rise up and, and be condemned, Nineveh is going to rise up because Nineveh repented when Jonah preached and one greater than Jonah is preaching. Jesus was greater than Jonah or greater than Solomon. The Queen of Sheba is going to rise up and judge this generation that was he because one greater than Solomon was there. So Jesus was even saying he's greater than Solomon, greater than these. But see, they, they realized that's the truth. So they thought Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem and take up the throne. To be the final, you know, the, the throne of David. Finally, he's going to be revealed. And really, all they wanted was to be those who noticed, the people noticed that he was, these were guys in the, his inner circle. They were wanting that role. And why do I know that? If you wait, if you read the next chapter, in chapter 10, you know, Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. And they, he starts talking about his death again. And they start daydreaming. And they start wondering. And then James and John they go and ask Jesus for those seats that is right and left when he comes in his glory. So they think he's going to take up the throne, and we just want to be those two guys at your right and your left. As people see you on the throne, we want, hey, who are those guys? You know, They wanted to be those have those places of honor, uh, and that was, that was their struggle. And so as he was working through that with them, he was trying to help them understand. They didn't, they didn't understand the significance of that. As a matter of fact, you know, they were caught up in that much more than listening to Jesus. He's saying again, now, this is the third time, uh, the second time of the three. It's pretty easy to remember in Mark. 
Mark 8.31, 9.31, and 10.32. Those are the three times he specifically takes his disciples aside and starts to instruct them. And each time, he's trying to get away from the crowd because he needs, the, he's, now his ministry, as they understand he's the Messiah, now he's going to try to instruct them. Okay, what is the role of the Messiah? Now, it's amazing to me. If he's the Messiah, shouldn't the Messiah know what the Messiah should do? I mean, this is always the case. You watch movies, there's always the person who is the Messiah person. Everybody's trying to convince him what he ought to do or she ought to do. And I mean, if, if Jesus is really the Messiah, he should know what the Messiah ought to do. And that's what the problem, you know, Peter had when he, you know, he's the Christ. And then finally, he talks about his death. He talks about him going, you know, to die. And Peter says, that'll never happen to you. And Jesus had to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan. Uh, that was his struggle, that he didn't understand what was going on because Jesus' perspective was very different. Jesus knew what he was called to do. He knew his perspective on greatness was very different from theirs. It wasn't about you know, who is the most significant, who should have those places of honor. His perspective of greatness uh, was one about uh, serving. So Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus knew... So what is his perspective? He, he says it to them in that in one particular verse. Whoever wants to be great among you must be last and servant of all. Last and servant of all. <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen this. Particular, there's a kind of a campaign, I am second. It's, it's really trying to poke, uh, uh, notice I'll seek first his kingdom, his rights, to seek God first and you're second. Well, my only problem with that kind of slogan is it's way too hot. I mean, if you read Jesus, you used to say, I'm last. That would be a better, that would be a better slogan. Jesus, seek first the kingdom and then put other people ahead of yourself. And you'd be last. Last and servant of most people, servant of all. That's Jesus' perspective. Because he knew that his role was uh, to come and die. He knew that his his role was, I mean, he, when he reads you realize that first, when Jesus is reading scripture, he's realizing this is his role. The first time, and at some point, Jesus didn't know who he was. I mean, I know that's hard to, that may be heresy for some of you. If Jesus was really human, fully human, his deity always understood who he was, but his humanity had to discover. I mean, as a, as a two-year-old, Jesus didn't know his role. I mean, as he was discovering, he, but certainly by the time he's 13 and at, at the temple left behind, he understood a great deal, but at some point Jesus had to discover. So when he reads Psalm 22, they looked upon the one they had pierced. They, you know, that they divided my garments among them and cast lots uh, for my clothing. Jesus realizes that's him. And he gets, he starts to read the, the Psalm, uh, Isaiah, the suffering servant. And he realizes that this is, this is talking about his role, that he is going to suffer on behalf of that he is a unique human being, fully God, fully man, never sinned, the last Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do, to take upon himself the sin of the world. That that was what he was, was called to do. Psalm Isaiah 50 says he gave his back to those who beat him and his cheek to those who plucked out his beard. And later on it talks about in Isaiah what, what we see of that. As a matter of fact, here's, here's some of what Isaiah says. These are familiar passages to you, but I, I still, it, it's worth, it's worth reading. He was despised and rejected by mankind, <clears throat> familiar with, with pain. 
Like one, we hide his face. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his day. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And later he said he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The good news is that here Jesus came to do that in a radical way. He was the unique one that could be crucified on our behalf. That he knew it was the Lord's will to crush him. That he was going to take the wrath of God on our behalf. You know, when I, was a, when I was growing up in the Roman Catholic Church on Good Friday, we had the Stations of the Cross. And we would go through, and it, just, it overwhelmed me to, to see what Jesus went through physically. But that, that's the physical. A lot of people had gone through crucifixion, which was an ordeal. But Jesus went through it, not just the wrath of humans, the wrath of God. That he took upon himself the wrath of God on our behalf in a radical way. You know, it was actually the, the second part, kind of the second climax of Mark is Jesus' is the cross in chapter 15 where he's crucified. And at that, it's, it's actually a Roman soldier who, who says this, who says, surely this man was the son of God. It's a Roman soldier. He looks upon how Jesus died, how he suffered. And he had no doubt uh, crucified many men before. But how Jesus was very different in a number of ways. I think he was different first that he gave his back to those who beat him. He didn't resist. I have a feeling when Jesus, when they nailed him to the cross, that he put his arm out for them. They didn't have to hold it down and tie him down. That he, in a unique way, and not only that, in how he died, that he cried out in a loud voice. Now, <clears throat> because when you, and then died. You don't die. Uh, crying out in a loud voice on the cross. It's basically death by exhaustion. At some point, you can't even talk, and then finally, you can't even lift to breathe, and you, you expire, you die. But here, in a loud voice, he cries out and, and then released his spirit. And, and the Roman soldiers, this, surely this was the Son of God. And even the, the cloud, the sun wouldn't shine. There was all kinds of stuff going on. So that's what's going on in this sense. Jesus bearing the sin of the world. And it's in that context he's telling them uh, <clears throat> what they're, what's, what's going on. Isn't it interesting how Jesus just kind of, they were arguing on their way at, about who was the greatest. And, and Jesus, after he's taken them aside and beginning to teach them about the Son of Man, again, would be delivered into the hands of men. And that's a new phrase, being delivered. That means he's going to be uh, betrayed. We now know that that's Judas who does that. Have you ever met anyone named Judas? We don't use that name anymore, do we? <laughs> I mean, it's like, keep away from that, you know? <laughs> so here, he was going to be delivered into the hands of, of, of men and will die and, and three days later rise. And, they, you know, the disciples didn't understand a lot, but they thought they understood certain things. And it's interesting, even when they're coming down from the, <clears throat> the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, 
uh, when Charles preached about that, they're asking this question. He said, don't talk about this until I've risen from the dead. And they look at each other, what does rising from the dead mean? But they were afraid to ask him. And he kept talking about rising from the dead. You understand the disciples had no concept of Jesus dying. None. He told them that over and over, but they had none. And there was also, after he died, there was no hope for a resurrection. I mean, they, even though he said it, he repeated it, and he repeated it, there was no expectation. Well, first they didn't think he was going to die, so then why would he come? You know, it just it was very confusing. But he's telling them all of that and trying to help them understand. So they're on the road arguing about who's the greatest. You know, when God asks questions, God is never asking questions to gain more information. You as parents have probably done that to your children. You're not asking them questions to gain information you don't already have. You're trying to draw them out. You're trying to get them to kind of open up a little bit. Well, Jesus is no different. What were you arguing about on the road? Uh, they, they kept quiet because they were arguing about, about who was the greatest. Uh, and so he, Jesus has to do some stuff for them. He has to teach them some lessons, and that's when he tells them, look, let me tell you my standard for greatness. Whoever be great among you must be servant of all. In chapter 10, you know, he, he expands that a little bit more. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of all. He said that, you know, he's pulling them aside. He's, you know, they're arguing about greatness and they're wanting those spots. He said the Gentiles love to lord it over one another. Their high officials exercise authority over one another. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be great must be servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And he doesn't stop there. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So he's trying to help them understand. He's trying to help them see. Let me tell you this real standard of greatness. It's not about who's the most important, who puts others as more important, who puts everyone else, the needs of others, ahead of, ahead of yourselves. And that's what he's trying to do. You see, I mean, Jesus is bearing this pressure of, of the weight of the sin, of the wrath of God that he's going to have to take, but he's also having to deal with these disciples who are going to have to pick up, pick up when he's gone. Who are going to? He's got to teach them. He's got to help them understand how their role is to follow his his example. So he gives them a couple of living examples. Uh, I love this uh, how Jesus's attitude towards children. So what does he do? He, he takes a child uh, and says, "Look, whoever welcomes this child." In my name, welcomes me, and if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. So if you if you welcome, you know, this child in Jesus' name, you're welcoming Jesus, and not just Jesus, but the Father who sent him. That's how valuable children are. Now, in, in Jesus' day, in the culture, Aramaic was the language of the first century Jew, and in Aramaic, the word for child and the word for servant are the same word, which tells you a little bit about how they saw children. And, and their role. But nonetheless, Jesus is picking up on this and said, that's not a bad thing. Let me help you understand. Children have no pretense of greatness. They don't argue about that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and, and a child uh, is this great example. He's, he wants them to become like children because eventually he's going to send them out as his servants. And they're going to be, as people receive them, it was as if they were receiving the Lord. If they're going to hear his, their message about the good news of the gospel, they're receiving Jesus. And if they're receiving Jesus, they're receiving the Father, the one who sent Jesus. And this is going to be important for them to understand and to see. Like a child, 
He wants them to get this. He wants them to see as they receive this message, the one who sends, Jesus is being is sending them out in the very in the very same way. So he takes a child and he blesses blesses that child, and the child is excited. His his second example as well is Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus, the last part, that Jesus took up our sin. He took up our infirmity. That Jesus himself, you know, we, he was not going to ask his disciples to do anything he was not committed to do and to model before them. That he wasn't looking, you know, here he was wrestling with the will of God. And, you know, Jesus' greatest temptation, I, I don't know what you think it is. Here's my my guess. His greatest temptation was the crown without the cross. And that's what Satan thought he had the most inroads into him, that tempting him to be a king and rule without the cross and bearing the sin of the world and being our savior, rescuing, redeeming, taking the wrath of God on behalf. No one else could, and if Jesus doesn't, then we're lost. And, and that's, that's, his large, that's the temptation that he gets. So the crown without the cross, but Jesus himself was going to put the, the will of God above his own. And the needs of mankind above his own comfort. So he submits to the will of God. He embraces the cross. Now he's, I mean, he struggles. Luke tells us that, you know, in Gethsemane, he's saying, Lord, and he's sweating drops of blood. Lord, if there's any way for salvation to be accomplished apart from me doing this, let it be. If not, my will, your will be done. And surely if there's another way, God would have answered that prayer. So if you ever hear anyone saying there's another way to God other than through Jesus Christ, they don't know the scriptures. If there was another way, and if there is another way, why did Jesus have to die? Well, there is no other way. There's no other way to God. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. That's the scriptures. I may be narrow-minded, but Jesus was narrow-minded about that. And God is narrow-minded about that. And there I stand. I like Billy Graham. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. <clears throat> argue with him. Don't argue with me. But there is a way. And Jesus was modeling for his disciples how he wanted them to do. He was saying, follow me. I'm putting the needs of mankind, but the obedience to God and the needs of mankind above all others. And we follow a servant Lord. And if we're following a servant Lord and if you're following him, what does that mean we have to be? Servant disciples that put God's will first and the needs of others not ahead of our own. That's the call uh, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It says, of, it says of Jesus in Mark 10. He says, he himself came to be, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And Paul says about him, who being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be take advantage of, but rather he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.